It's Valentine's Day and love is in the air. Attraction all around us. Black drumfish are getting frisky in Florida. Just like a low hum or a vibration more than it is uh, a noise. And in just a couple months, cicadas will be crawling out of the ground and looking for love. Basically starting in mid-April through about the end of May, that six week period, there will be trillions of cicadas out and uh, trying to find mates and trying to trying to create the next generation. From birds singing for love in the springtime sun to frogs croaking through rainy nights, animals are on the prowl. And us humans aren't much different when it comes to sexual desires. Today, we are going off the radar to explore how weather and climate influence the mating rituals of humans and animals alike. Whether you're single, coupled up, or just hooking up, this special Valentine's Day episode will leave you feeling warm and fuzzy. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you are listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. As you heard, today's episode is all about sex. Yes, I know, a racier topic than we've explored so far on the show. But there's been a lot of interesting research about weather and sex, both in animals and in humans. And I wanted to learn more. And what I learned was fascinating. So first, I'll be talking to Dr. Jeremy McNeil, an etymologist from the University of Ontario. He's going to share a great story of how he discovered the mating behavior of different insects was being impacted by atmospheric pressure changes. Dr. McNeil is a hoot, and he has some really great stories. You're going to love listening to him. And then later, I'll be talking to a system science professor that's done a lot of research on human sexual behavior due to weather and climate changes. Spoiler alert, (laughs) humans are a lot more complicated than animals. I hope you learned something. I know I sure did. Let's start with my conversation with Dr. McNeil. Dr. Jeremy McNeil, let's talk about... Behavior of animals based on weather. I know you've done some research on the topic. There's been a lot of folklore, I feel like, over the years as well about, you know, people saying, well, my dog can predict weather. We've seen recent news stories about sharks that have moved prior to hurricanes arriving 
even before a solid forecast was in place. So can you tell me, is there actual scientific research to back up animal behavior and weather pattern changes? Yeah. So basically, we a number of years ago, I was working in a at Laval University in Quebec City, and we had a rearing room that was down in the uh, room, an experimental room down in the basement, and we would put together these little tiny um, parasitic wasps, which were used to control aphid pests. And one thing I noticed, and you've got to understand, no windows. The lights are the same. Everything is the same. Temperature, photoperiod, humidity, everything is the same. And I would set up, say, 100 pairs, and on one day we get 99% mating. I'd repeat it the next day, and we would get 12%. I'd do it the next day, we would get 50%. And it was all over the shop. And I'm going, what the heck is going on here? You know, everything is controlled. And then I saw, wait a minute, one thing that isn't controlled is the atmospheric pressure and how it will change. And so I thought, well, this is weird. And I had it in the back of my mind. And then I had another student. We were interested in how the male wasps respond to the female sex pheromone, and they fly up wings. So we could put a virgin female um, in, a, in a cage in a trap, and the males, we would catch them. And you could tell, was she a very attractive male, uh, female, or a not-so-attractive one? And you see one had nine males, another one had four, etc. And so, but we had what's called a wind tunnel, where we can actually experimentally fly them upwind. And we put a source up at one end, and we fly them up. And so we were watching it. Some days, a whole bunch of them responded. Next day, very few. I'm going, this reflects the mating behavior. This is odder than hell. So my student David and I ran an experiment where every day at the same time, we flew, I'll say, 25 male wasps every day for 40 days, classified them as high, medium, and low responses, etc. And I asked um, um, a meteorologist, I said, okay, for each one of these days, starting at, say, midnight until 10 in the morning, was the atmospheric pressure rising, decreasing, or stable? And he had no idea what, I, what the results of the other experiment were. And when we plotted the results, the responses reflected they didn't, when there was a major increase or decrease, we got a very low response. When um, it was stable, we got a very good response. But of course, that's only a correlation. We cannot prove that that was the reason why they did it. And then I moved to Western, where I am now, and in our research facility called AFAR, we have a basimetric wind tunnel. And we could actually change it. So what we did using two totally different species, this time an aphid and um, a moss. And the, in both cases, the, the females emit a sex pheromone. And with the aphids, they stick their back legs up in the air 
And in the case of the uh, moth, she has a gland at the end of her abdomen, which she extrudes. And then the, the odor is carried on the wind. The pheromones like uh, perfume. And uh, the, the males of that species will respond. So we ran, we set up a night, we put all the individuals in, in the tunnel, and we either stable, decrease, or increase. And lo and behold, that if there was a, an increase or a decrease in the atmospheric pressure in the six to eight hours prior to the window that they normally do their behavior, the animals didn't do that behavior anywhere near as much. So this time we could say it is in response to changes in atmospheric pressure. Well, one thing we saw was that, for example, in the aphid, when it was stable, most of the females exhibited the calling behavior, emitting the odor to attract males. When there was a decrease, very few, increase or decrease, very few of them did. Well, an increase means it's going to be sunny, but the, uh, there are going to be hot air uh, rising for, as the soil uh, increases and there's windy. And if you're the size of a pinhead or not much bigger, those sorts of winds could blow you anywhere. Inversely, when there's a decrease, of course, you're going to have bad weather. And if you're the size of a pinhead and a raindrop falls on your head, that's like you having a Toyota dropped on your head. Not good. <laughs> so it makes perfect sense. Now, interestingly enough, the moths did this. Well, the females um, called less when it was um, the atmospheric pressure dropped, but not when the atmospheric pressure rose. But they're fairly big insects sitting on a tree, sticking their bum out. Well, then we said, okay, how many of them we set pairs up and said, how many of them mate? Well, in the case of the aphids, if there was no change in atmospheric pressure in the previous six to eight hours, they mated. If there was a decrease or an increase, nothing, nobody mated. Because in both cases, for the female that's very tiny, standing on the edge of a leaf, sticking her back legs out, any turbulence, she could fall off. The male has to fly to her. And again, if you're that big, you're not going to fly. It's dangerous. How are, okay, I guess I'm wondering, you've noticed the correlation here. You've proven the correlation. But the how, how are they sensing the atmospheric pressures? There are probably sensors in, in somewhere in the brain or on the antennae or somewhere. It's been proposed that with increasing and decreasing atmospheric pressure, changes the volume of the blood. So that increases the pressure and would allow the insect to know certain conditions are happening. Um, nobody has yet put their finger on this. Okay. Did you have any idea when you started this study where it was going? Did you know that it was going to go in this direction of weather and atmospheric changes? Sounds arrogant to say yes. <laughs> but no, not because I'm being smart. I'm going, animals are smart. You know, when you think about it, all of the wonderful things. I mean, think about the monarch butterfly that I work on. It can leave London, Ontario and end up in a place in Mexico that it has never been to, its parents have never been to, its grandparents have never been to, and it was probably his great-great or great-great-great-grandmother 
to the left. How the hell do you do that? They don't know geography, anything else. They use sun compass orientation, etc. Well, the fact that we know this, birds can fly thousands of kilometers. When you're faced with all that evidence and you're saying, could they do this with atmospheric pressure? It's almost like, for God's sake, don't ask stupid questions. Of course they can. All we've got to do is find a way to prove it. Next up, I'll be talking with Dr. Louise Rocha from SUNY Binghamton. Dr. Rocha has done extensive research into human behaviors, specifically related to weather. I was so intrigued by how they get this data and what it says about humans. Take a listen. And I want to start by getting a little bit of background on you and your research. So can you tell me what your research is in? Yeah, sure. I mean, generally, I work in this area of complex systems, which uh, people always ask, what is that? (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, it has this tradition. It's an interdisciplinary field that uses a lot of computers, data, artificial intelligence to study um, very large numbers of variables, um, you know, could that, I, I personally focus more on working on biological systems, so evaluating networks of thousands of genes and how they might be involved in disease. Uh, we apply our methods to a lot of things. So sometimes I might be working on you know economic data. Sometimes I might be working you know financial data or social data, political data. But a lot of the time, I focus on biological problems. Okay, so people. People. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm curious what kind of research has been done when it comes to people and their sexual behaviors, because it would seem in what I've looked at that there's a lot of research kind of based on like birth rates. But as we know, um, humans aren't just doing it for (laughs) babies. So I'm curious what you've seen there and if any of that has environmental factors like weather. We have done this paper um, that it became you know, pretty famous um, a couple of years ago that we looked at uh, human cycles of reproduction, specifically because people were thinking that there was a weather factor, but not just weather. Um, so there, for a long time, people have, it has been known that there's a peak of births around uh, September, um, especially in the United States and in other areas. So the, the peak of conceptions then would be nine months before around December. Uh, and so this was, uh, you know, people always assumed or a lot of sociobiologists believed that this has to do with a, a, some kind of human adaptation and evolutionary adaptation to the solar cycles. So in the winter, around the winter solstice, there's less light, it's colder, and then people have more children, you know, about, you know, uh, make more children than that. Then you see the birth peak in September. There was a, other people, notoriously Kinsey and so forth, studied um, the effect of, of weather. I mean, starting with him, but uh, uh, and temperature, and it was well known that there was a v- big low in in interest in sex around uh, uh, the summer when it's really hot. In fact. Because of that result, even Cole Porter has a famous song in which he says, according to the Kinsey report, every man, every, I don't know exactly how it goes, and for every man avoids sex on, on oh, Christmas funny. or something like much prefers. I've never uh, heard that. 
but we could write a famous Cole Porter song from a Broadway show. Huh. And so it was known that. Then we do know that once the advent of air conditioning came, that that changed uh, a lot. Uh, it changed and and therefore the summer months are more like other months in terms of how much birth nine months later you have. But so after all of this, there was still this idea that for some reason, the human species had adapted to the solar cycle. And therefore, that's why we had this peak of birth in September. I had not necessarily to do with temperature, maybe with light. And the reason why they thought this is that many other species have adaptations of their cycle. There's other species that are adapted to the solar cycle. So, I mean, we looked at this and we, we were not convinced because... Um, a number of factors that started, uh, uh, you know, that we started paying attention to. One, there was a, a paper of um, in Israel where three main religions live in the same period. Uh, that there were different birth peaks, whether people were Jewish, Muslim, or Christian. They had different birth peaks, and it didn't they didn't match. Uh, and so that started pointing to a cultural element there. And then we went to look at the data and we realized all data that people had published this hypothesis on pertain to the North Atlantic area, basically Europe and the United States, which were very homogeneous in a sense culturally. It was largely Christian um, and they were all in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. Therefore, they have the solstice cycle at the same time. So I said, to resolve this question, we should look this at a planetary scale. <laughs> And then so we decided, so, so if this, this hypothesis is true, we should expect an opposite cycle in, say, in Australia, right? They should have, their, if it's whether it's temperature or whether it's weather or lack of light, you should have this birth cycle later. So we went to look at this data and it didn't pan out uh, in Australia and other places like that. You still saw the birth peak in September. And then it turns out we, there's not much, we couldn't find high quality birth data outside of Western countries. We, ha, we needed a surrogate measure to measure interest in sex, um, not just birth. Very curious what you're going to say. <laughs> so we went to look, people looking for pornography on internet, basically, oh. <laughs> on the internet, they search, or sex, search, search for sexual terms on the internet. And we found that on the countries we had data, there was a huge correlation. So when there's a more um, search for sex uh, in the United States, nine months later, you have more births. It's, so there is a correlation there. Uh, so weeks that have more searches than they do, do correspond to later, at gross mode around nine months later, more birth peaks. So we started saying, well, this is a good surrogate measure for the countries we don't have good birth data. And we were able to get all that data from Google searches and so evaluated that. And we came to the conclusion that now the correlation was not with the solstices, but with the religion. And we were, because it's on a planetary scale, we could only look at two main religions that are spread around globally, which was Islam and Christianity. And, and so we leave some countries out of this, like China uh, and others, but it, it, we could show that what leads the birth of peaks is Christmas. It's, the, it's Christmas time uh, in all the uh, Christian countries and in, in Muslim countries is the end of Ramadan where there's a, the Eid al-Fitr um, 
a celebration at the very end of Ramadan that also uh, has the same effect. And so this, what, was, what people thought was a biological response is really a cultural response. Like around Christmas, people may be happier. Um, and, and so to try to take that a little further, we went to look at Twitter data too. So we looked at Twitter around the globe to try to estimate the sentiment that people are having around particular times. And this is in our technique, there's something called sentiment analysis that basically looks at the proportions of words you are using that have some kind of emotional content. And we did all sorts of things to change that data. Like we removed the obvious things like Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas. That's, that's removed from our analysis so that would not contaminate. And then we found interesting things like, uh, for instance, there's a lot more interest in searching for sex in the United States around Christmas than around Thanksgiving, which you would expect a similar sort of People are out of, they're out of, they don't go to work and around that time. Either way, kids are out of school too. So all the factors that you have in one or the other uh, don't happen, right? And they're still most, most of the time cold in the Northern Hemisphere. At uh, the same time in France and in Germany, which don't have Thanksgiving, but they have East, Easter is a big celebration and kids are out of school for Easter the same thing doesn't happen. So there seems to be something particular about Christmas. Mm. Santa. It's Santa. <laughs> it's, it's, I, 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 that I don't... We can He's prove getting people that, hot and bothered. <laughs> people like to give... Uh, I mean, uh, make, giving makes people feel good. In fact, there's the old Marilyn Monroe song, you know, you know about uh, Santa, Santa Baby and... Uh, all of that. So the giving is maybe makes people in the mood that, and and I'm saying this half jokingly. There's also a component of children um, around those the, that celebration, which is also very uh, the same in Ramadan in, in the end of Ramadan and Eid al Fitr in Islamic countries, where the that celebration is very children focused and giving presents to children as well. Um, and maybe that all contributes to this. But it, so but maybe people are like looking at kids opening presents and thinking like, let's have another one of these. I'm not sure. I, I wonder if it's that explicit or is more like the general just sentiment. Joy, just overall joy. joy. All of that. And maybe, I, I don't, I mean, maybe some person, I don't know, let's make a family. But I, 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 I doubt it. That doesn't explain them searching for porn on the internet, though. <laughs> And I, we found out later because it had been a lot of media mentioned and oh. then the, was the reporter that actually pointed that to my attention. Yeah. For instance, in the United States, it's well known, the condom manufacturers are well known that there's a lot more need for them around Christmas. The week between Christmas and New Year's, they sell a lot more and they already prepared for that through the year. So there was a few articles that pointed me, the, the reporter pointed, and I, I was not aware of that one. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's not going to add to the birth rate. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's not. But 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 you know, the question with this analysis are so so many millions of people that obviously, I mean, the search for sex on the internet for the vast majority of people is not going to lead to children. But if only if only a few percent, it does. It's still you still notice the peak uh, 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 nine months later. So. Mm. Um, I want to go back to you mentioned your Twitter research yeah. and how you look at like tone. Have you done any research on whether or whether events 
or cold weather or climate and Twitter and how people react to different types of weather, different types of environmental factors? There are several groups that have done this to look at, uh, you know, the sentiment around not just weather, but uh, temperatures. And they actually come up with like a map, sort of a weather map. <laughs> and you can measure the sentiment of people in different areas of the United States. And it really correlates very well of whether it's a sunny day or uh, not, not a sunny day. And the, the, the way people are expressing themselves on Twitter really is a pulse for, for that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's actually that type of work is what motivated us to do what we did. Like if it, we thought if it's possible to track this so accurately, then we can track, you know, for other things. Yeah, it's interesting what you said, too, because my thought process was that weather was going to become more impactful on human behaviors as time goes on because of climate climate change. But maybe it's the opposite, because like you said, with air conditioning, there's all these other factors where we're just kind of sheltering ourselves from what's going on outside. That was, I mean, that is something that we've seen since the 50s. And there's a lot of papers I and mean, since Kinsey doing that, that was a big transformation, especially in the south of the United States, uh, the the you know the birth rates associated with the summer months were really low in the United States in the because hot and humid nobody wanted to get into it. I bet no, thank you. <laughs> but uh, compared to the winter, but the, the air conditioning changed that, and I and I think that there is um, a, a a social component to it in that the wealthier have more air conditioning and the, and the birth cycles are, 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 are related to that too. Mm, uh, interesting. There's many, in all these questions, there's always a lot of different factors at the same time going on. But So many factors. Like, I, you know, I talked to the guy about insects and the insects are kind of one track mind. They have one goal and that's to create offspring. So everything in their world is centered around that. But humans, there's so many other factors I mean, insects don't last that long, so they have to do that and die, right? So, yes. um, interesting. Okay, do you have anything else you want to add about your research that might be beneficial? One thing I wanted to add is this. I mean, this was it, it was a collaborative work. I didn't do this on my own. I mean, there was in particular there's a, a person, Joanna Sand. She was responsible for coming up with a, a lot of the research questions. So I just wanted to to point out that our work is always very collaborative. Has anything in your entire career of research really surprised you? Like the outcome of the research just really shocked you? Uh, this one that I mentioned about the human psycho shocked me in a, in a different way, more meta way that it was like, I never thought I would work on this in my life, right? So if somebody asked me, are you going to work on this? Until Joanna, who I mentioned, came, you know, this is an interesting question. I read this paper about... Um, in Israel, but let's do this on a planetary scale. And so that itself, to me, is the joy of doing science because I didn't expect to be working on that. If I have the time, because it's somewhat related to sex, as we were talking, for instance, climate change, this is a, it's a big problem with some species, like some crocodiles and some other um, frogs and, uh, and other species where the, the gender is dictated not by genes, but by the temperature of the nest. So turtle, turtles in particular, some types of turtles some, and some alligators, the, the gender is dictated by whether the egg was warmer or cooler inside the nest. Which and one is which, do you know? I don't remember. I don't know what it is because it doesn't really matter which one it is. As long as there is 
sort of a threshold. Evolution takes care that you have about half of each. But now imagine as the water is getting warmer in some of these climates, all the eggs are getting warmer, so they're all just one gender. And that make, make some species be um, uh, 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 extinct. And now going back to this redundancy that we were talking, so uh, there are species that have come out, especially in Australia, in and out of this method of giving equal gender. Sometimes it's genetically driven and sometimes it's just temperature. And having it genetically driven is something that technically would not be needed because in, in a particular, for a hundred years, for a thousand years, it's not needed, right? The, the environment takes care of this for you because depending on the temperature of the eggs. But then if you have an event where everything gets super cold or super hot, then suddenly you might need it. And so the species that actually maintain genetic control have an advantage. So in other words, this is a case where you have redundant things. The genes would not technically be needed for this, but in case of crisis, you need it. And so you're probably going to be seeing this with some a lot of species in climate change. Some those that will disappear did not have these redundant plat mechanisms to control their gender. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes publish every Tuesday morning. If you know someone interested in this topic of weather and mating behavior, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show and give me some ideas for future episodes. Special thanks to both Jeremy McNeil and Louise Rocha for their expertise. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.